Ladies and gentlemen, now the moment you've all been waiting for, it's a world-famous Jackrabbit Slim's Twist Contest. Now this is where one lucky couple will win this handsome trophy that Marilyn here is holding. Now who will be our first contestants? Right here. Want to dance? No, 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 no. I do believe Marsalis, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. Now I want to dance. I want to win. I want that trophy. Right. So dance good. All right. Now let's meet our first contestants here this evening. Young lady, what is your name? Mrs. Mia Wallace. And uh, how about your fella here? Vincent Vega. All right, let's see what you can do. Take it away. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished them well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle. And now the young monsieur and madame have rung the chapel bell. C'est la vie, c'est the old folks It goes to show you never can tell They furnished off an apartment with a two-room robot sale Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. It's been about a month. I am super excited about the year ahead. We've got some great new guests and excellent list of movies on tap for 2024. And tonight is, uh, man, we're going big tonight, Jason. Jason Wagenheim, welcome to the show. You've been wanting on the show for a while now. You just said this before on our pregame. We've been circling this for what, like six months? Something like that. I feel like we had dinner in Los Angeles maybe like two years ago now when you first told me about the pod. I think I listened to Reservoir Dogs was the first one that you did with Newhouser, And I think I just couldn't believe that you had not done Pulp Fiction yet. Like it, it was shocking to me. We're on, this is episode 33 or something. And, and it's the first time we're, we're addressing the probably most culturally significant film of our generation, Dennis. I'm glad you finally got to it. I remember we had dinner in LA and I was telling you about the pod and we were catching up. I hadn't seen you in a while and uh, you didn't even hesitate. You just said, Pulp Fiction, is that available? Is that on the, is that on the table? And I was like, wow, you're not messing around. Only the one of the most influential movies ever. And you grabbed it. Um, a lot of people are going to be jealous that you're doing Pulp Fiction. I will say that. So no pressure. But it's cool. Like you, you, you sort of like asked yourself onto the show, which I thought was awesome. And, and I have a few <laughs> other guests that are coming up in the next, uh, next month and the one after that are guests that uh, wanted to be on the show, first timers. And maybe, maybe the pod is becoming a thing or something. I, I don't know. In media circles anyway, I think it's quite the thing. Let's do a proper introduction. Jason, I've known you. How long do you think it's been now? Like a decade? Longer? Oh, longer. I think that we'd have to go back and do some LinkedIn checking here. But I want to say that I was at Vanity Fair in 2008 and you were probably at PhD on HBO. Yep. And we did a lot of work with HBO. It was like the True Blood Days, Boardwalk Empire, um, and you were, you were a client of ours. The Mary Connolly days. That's right. Good. Shout out to Mary Connolly. Yeah. We love Mary. Um, <laughs> and then you, when you went off to, where'd you go next? Did you go to? I went to Turner after that. I went to right. Atlanta. Yep. That's right. And I went to entertainment weekly and became publisher there around that same time, 2010, 11, I think it was. And, um, yeah, so we've been, it's probably 15, 16 years. 
I forget about the EW phase. I forget about it too. I was there for just about two cups of coffee. Where did you go after EW? Remind me. Uh, after EW, I went back to Condé Nast and I worked at Teen Vogue. I was publisher at Teen Vogue That's for right. four years up until 2015. And yeah. we weren't doing a lot of business together for Teen Vogue. I was at Nat Geo at that point, And that's not an audience that National Geographic was. Not so much. Although young girls love science, but you know, not so much on the advertising side. <laughs> you just started a new gig a few weeks ago. So congratulations. You started a new role at, as uh, CEO of North America for Football Co. Tell us about Thanks. the company. Tell us about the gig. Yeah. So Football Co. is the world's largest soccer media platform. If you are a soccer fan and you are anywhere in the world but the United States, you know Gold.com. That's the flagship brand. It's published in 17 languages. We've got a few other brands catering to the women's game, uh, more fashion kind of culture and soccer and the intersection of those things. And the the remit is to basically stand up a U.S. business. There's such great tailwinds around soccer in this country. The World Cup will be here in 2026, which everybody's excited about. So how do we become the most important definitive media platform in this country covering the beautiful game? And we're starting from scratch. I've got a team of about a dozen people so far and a big charge ahead of me as we get to that World Cup moment in June of 2026. So it's a nice runway ahead. I'm looking forward to it. It's awesome. Congratulations. I'm really happy for you. Were you always a football guy? Like, it was, Is this like a dream job for you or is just like it just sort of fell in your lap? I played growing up my whole life and, and recreationally in college, but uh, never been like a super fan of the Premier League or MLS or NWSL, but that's all changing. I'm finding myself on Saturday mornings on Peacock and USA and NBC watching uh, Premier League games, which is a new thing. And I'm absolutely loving it. I'm loving becoming a fan and sort of immersing myself very, very quickly in the game. So it's awesome. It's just, it's a, it's a dream job on so many levels. I'm happy to be in sport um, and out of women's lifestyle for the time being. And I'm um, looking forward to what's ahead. There's no easy way to segue into condiments, but when you and I had dinner in LA, it just probably was like maybe last spring or last summer. Um, you dropped the, you dropped a bomb on me. You, I had no idea that you were doing what you told me that you were doing, which is that you have a side hustle. It's called East End Cowboy, which I actually have in my refrigerator as we speak, as you <laughs> sent it to me. Tell everybody about what this is. Shamelessly promote it because this is your opportunity. This is so fun. I started uh, as a total accident and a hobby. I started a barbecue sauce side hustle. So I love barbecue. I love smoking meat. I went to school in South Carolina where I sort of, uh, you know, got fell in love with brisket and ribs and pulled pork and the science and behind fire and smoke and food, the relationship between those things. And I started making my own sauce and having these parties in my backyard as barbecue stories typically go. They start in the backyard. And everybody was like, you need to open a restaurant. I'm like, that's stupid. I have like, I need health insurance and I've got a family to feed, but I could figure out how to jar this sauce. Yep. So it was a total hobby. I learned how acidified food works and I did online courses with Cornell around how to properly can stuff so it has shelf stability. And I started producing a couple cases at a time and dropping them off at farm stands where I live. And Citarella, the big gourmet store in New York and the Hamptons in Connecticut, found my sauce and sent me a note. And after about three months of just badgering me with questions and asking me everything about how I make it and how I source ingredients and whatever, I got a purchase order for 150 cases out of nowhere. That's and I was like, fuck, I know how to make like two cases at a time. I don't know how to make 150. But I figured it out. A friend of mine and I went into the kitchen and did it over four days. And that, the rest is history. We accidentally became a business. And um, it's a lot of fun. It's still a total hobby and a side hustle. But it's it's nice to have something that's not 
my day job and something else to define me other than what, you know, media and advertising has for the last 30 years. Have you expanded the distribution with that? No, I, I have no bandwidth or time to do it. I'm, you know, there's one day down the road, I'm, I like to think I'm nurturing the brand right now and um, sort of, you know, slowly developing it. And again, it's just totally on the side. One day we'll see where it gets, you know, where, where life takes us, but it's just hobby mode still. I'm picturing our listeners, they're, they're listening to this episode. They're probably at a red light, right? And they're like, all right, this guy just got a new job. He's CEO of this of this great soccer football company, and he's making barbecue sauce on the side. This guy, I, I would feel like inferior. I'd be like, man, what the hell am I doing with my life? This guy is like getting it done. He's got a side hustle. Unbelievable. I like to keep moving. Like you, I like to keep moving. All right, listen, let's get into character. Yes. This is probably going to be the best conversation you will have this week. We're talking about Pulp Fiction. The relationships that we both have with this movie run pretty deep. You told me that uh, this movie is the reason you went to film school. I didn't even know that you went to film school. So that's really high praise. Talk about that moment. I guess maybe that moment of clarity that you had in your life that this film sort of ignited and how did a career in film lead to a career in media? <laughs> you know, I had to go back and text my college roommate, this guy, Lee Klontz, and he's going to listen to this. So I want to give him a shout out. He lives in Georgia and Atlanta now. And I, I texted him a couple weeks ago and I said, hey, dude, re remind me, did we see Pulp Fiction together in the movie theater? Because we were seniors in college at the University of South Carolina. And he's like, we absolutely saw it together. You loved it. I loved it. But you loved it way more than I did. And all you did was talk about it for months and months after that. You wanted to be Vincent Vega. You quoted it every single day. It was like borderline annoying. <laughs> and I went back and had some reflection on like that. And he helped you know me remember certain things that happened at that time, I was a senior. I didn't want to graduate and uh, go work in New York as an assistant at a media company. I still felt like, you know, I, I could stay in school, get a graduate assistantship, go to film school uh, at University of South Carolina. And um, this film really opened the eyes for me of like what opened my eyes to what independent film could really do. Character development, storytelling, you know, dialogue. It felt so different than anything that I had ever seen before. And I walked out with just, it was one of those cinematic experiences where you walk out and you're like, I want to do this for a living. I want to tell stories like this. And that's it. You know, there's really nothing more to it, but um, it helped kind of propel me into wanting to pursue film as a career and then when I graduated film school, I actually sold out and just took a real job in media working in news corporation for $28,000 a year when all my friends were making $22,000 a year. So it was a, it was a big lift on top of what the sure. going rate was for an entry level job. But, um, I loved it. It was transformative for me and it really, um, it really connected with me on a million levels, which a lot of which I'm sure we'll talk about in the next hour. I mean, you obviously had a phenomenal career in media as, as you and I just talked about, but do you have any regrets on not? pursuing the film thing a, a little bit longer than you did? Or like, are you at peace with, you know, the decision? Yeah, look, I've had a great career and it's been an awesome 30 years. And I think my, my decision was instead of going to Los Angeles and being a starving waiter slash writer and trying to like claw my way up, you know, through the ranks in Hollywood, I would just go start making money working in media and kind of accidentally fell into this job at News Corp. Um, and I have no regrets. I mean, I, I don't look back. I mean, I, I still love to write. I still love to think about stories. I still love to unpack films like we're doing now. So, you know, I'm very fulfilled in, in everything that I've, I've done the last 30 years. And there's, you never know what's ahead. I'm just 50 years old. I've got a couple chapters left. I often get that question at dinner sometimes, like if you had the time machine, like what would you do when you go back? What would you do differently? Right. And my answer has always been, Film school. I probably would have made myself a really good screenwriter. I think that's probably what I would have been focused on. I would have loved yeah. to have studied all elements of film. But if I had to go back and do it again, and I love my career in media, don't take that the wrong way. It's just more about 
Um, I feel like I've got a gift in that that I never really fully harnessed. And if I had, I'm always curious as to what that would have led to. You can still do it. Go read Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman. It's the Bible of, you know, for every screenwriting student. I read it in college and have gone back and reread it. You know, you can you can always get into it, man. You know, I think um, I think it could be a brilliant second chapter. Just put start putting pen to paper, get yourself final draft and do it. I want to talk about what Pulp did to me because I have a very similar experience. I'm a little bit older than you, but like I talked about this in the dogs episode. So I'm going to, I'm going to rehash this a little bit, but in 93, my first job out of college was working for a celebrity publicist. She was actually based in LA, but I was in the New York office and it was a small company. We had four people in New York and like three, but we handled uh, PR for a lot of major actors and, and filmmakers. We had Julia Roberts and Nicole Kidman and Rob Reiner. And, you know, J- Jonathan Demi was shooting Philadelphia when I, when I first started the job. Right. So anyway, this intern, this kid, I think his name was Brian. He's an intern at NYU. He was studying film and he comes in one day and he's like, man, I, I got this screenplay. I'm like, what's that? He's like, I've got the screenplay for Pulp Fiction. You have it on your, in your bag. And he's like, yeah, I have it right here. Do you want me to make you a copy? Yes, I want you to make me a copy. Go to the Xerox, make me a copy of Pulp Fiction. The thing was huge, dude. It was like 180 pages. It's almost like a three-hour movie, right? So this kid gives it to me. I I was taking Metro North back then. I was living in Connecticut for a little bit with my parents. And I remember I started reading the Pulp Fiction screenplay on a Friday commute back to Brewster. And dude, like I'm reading it and I'm like, I'm, you know, you know how the trains are, they're kind of quiet. Nobody really talks. And I'm like laughing out loud on some of this dialogue (laughs) that you just talked about. And like, and like halfway through it, I think I read like half of it on the train ride. And that was like halfway through when I realized that Vincent gets killed. Right. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, and I think at this point I knew that they were filming it. And I was pretty sure that I knew Travolta was playing Vincent. Right. So here I am, I'm reading the screenplay and I just spoiled this movie for myself because now I know that one of the main oh characters God. gets gets killed halfway through it. But I was so excited. Like I almost wanted to stand up in the aisle of Metro North and be like, do you fucking people have any idea what I'm reading right now? This is crazy. This is crazy. So you knew then you knew long before this film even came out that, that you were holding on to gold and this would be such a yep. culturally significant yep. film. That's, that's it was it was incredible. insane. Like I, I went home the rest of the weekend. I finished the script. I think I read it again because I loved it so much. And for the next year and change, I was telling people like this movie's coming in 94. I don't know when in 94, but it's going to be a big thing. And everybody's like, I think people are getting tired of hearing me talk about it. And I was like, I don't think you understand what Pulp Fiction is going to do. Like I said, this movie, I mean, to what you said earlier about the dialogue and the characters and the storytelling, the way it breaks format and structure, and it's not linear. Like I, I just like, I didn't realize writers could do that. Like, and I was so inspired, not that I wanted to go to film school necessarily, but I was definitely inspired that I wanted to write scripts I mean, I just said to you a little while ago, like I, I, I always had writing inside me, but I will tell you, like as a 23 year old, I had this dream after reading this screenplay and after seeing Pulp Fiction in 94 that I like, I wanted to be a writer. Like I was like, I wrote a stupid screenplay on my typewriter called Three Lone Wolves. It was about these wisecracking goons, shocker, um, <laughs> terrible. I remember like the opening scene was like these, this punk kid, he was, he was captured by these two other goons. And like, he gives this elaborate speech about fried egg sandwiches. The whole thing is just terrible. Jason, it never sold, never sold. <laughs> Let's make it. Let's go make it. I was that kid in, or that young man in 94, 95 that had the dogs poster on the wall in my office. I had the pulp poster. I had the true romance poster. I could not get enough of Tarantino. So I had a very similar reaction that you did. Maybe I was a little bit older than you, but I was, I was guzzling the Tarantino Kool-Aid. 
It's crazy. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I just I, I I remember sitting in the theater and just thinking, like, how did they do that? Especially, you know, I've seen the film a bunch now, like like you probably have, and I catch it every time I can. And I, I just remember sitting there that first time in the theater when it all comes together, like the prologue, the beginning scene in the in the diner, in the Hawthorne diner, and the the final scene. And you're like, holy shit! I, did that just happen? Like, and then you're starting to like backtrack and put the chronology in your head and figure out what happened when. And you know, there were so many shocking moments in the film where you're just like, what the fuck just happened? I mean not many films have ever really done that for me with the exception of this one and a couple of other uh, Tarantino films. I can't believe that nobody else figured out how to do this until Tarantino come along. Right? I mean, like yeah. there were, there were plenty of other movies that have come around with great characters and great dialogue and good witty banter. But like the fact that it took Quentin to come along and, and this video store guy, this video store clerk that, you know, didn't even go to film school video, I guess working at the video store was his, his film school yeah, for him sure. to come up with this story and, and win the Oscar for best original screenplay for his very second film that he's ever done is just it's staggering to think about. Yeah. And to do it for like next to nothing, you know, low budget to get all those actors in the same room, making, you know, not much money relative to what they would have made on, you know, with a much bigger uh, box office release. Um, it was it was pretty epic. Um, and, and again, the storytelling, I think gangster films and thugs and films like you never really saw that level of IQ or dialogue. And we'll unpack a lot of this, but it really humanized these awful, otherwise awful characters and made you absolutely fall in love with them and be cheer- cheering for them every step of the way. Everybody's got redeeming qualities to an extent, but like, these are not good people. All right. So let's talk about the movie. Before we get into it, I have I have to just stop for for a disclaimer for a second, because I did some research and, you know, with my my degree that I don't have in math and and. <laughs> statistics. The word, the word fuck was used, uh, 265 times. There is a Wikipedia list that is the, uh, how many times the word fuck has been used in different films. Um, it ranks number 39 reservoir dogs is number 38 with 265 times, excuse me, or 269 times. So the FPM, the fuck per minute on this film is 1.72 times. Dennis, I, I just think your viewers should know your listeners should know that we intend to beat that record or at least match it with uh, an F bomb every one point. That, that's like, that's like a high CPM, right? That we're, 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 yeah, we're, no we're doubt. The forward. FPM, the <laughs> FPM. We're allowed to say fuck in your podcast, right? We can swear as much as you want. Where does Midnight Run on that list? I don't have it in front of me. Right, I don't okay. know. I casino, sure. casino, uh, Wolf of Wall Street was number three and Casino was number eight. I had heard that about Wolf of Wall Street, that that movie had more more fucks than just about any other movie that's been made over the last 40, 50 years. So that that tracks. But I got to think Midnight Run's probably up there too. But this episode's going to get the big E uh, logo when I, when I publish, <laughs> and that's totally fine. Pulp Fiction, uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. It's based on a story by Tarantino and his buddy Roger Avery. Uh, their relationship was great at the start of the filming of this movie, but it went sideways shortly after, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, released October 16th, 1994. Get this, man. There was one other movie that opened that same weekend, another acclaimed film from the 90s that is treasured just as much as Pulp Fiction is, The Shawshank Redemption. Can Great you believe, film. Jason Wagenheim, that those two movies came out the same weekend in October? No idea. No, no memory of that whatsoever. I can't even – I love Shawshank. I can't tell you exactly where and when I saw it the first time. Well, you know, Shawshank didn't do well. That, that's the big thing about that movie is that it was, it was kind of a, a commercial flop and the critics mm-hmm. loved it and obviously people loved it. But nobody went to go see it in the theater. I remember my brother and I saw it that weekend as well, but we definitely saw this one first. Bad experience for the Kamek brothers. We went to go see this Pulp Fiction opening night, Friday night. Again, as you remember, 
this is me waiting like 18 months to go see this movie because I had read the script. So I could not wait to get to go see this. But I remember we saw it in Gaithersburg, Maryland. The sound wasn't very good. It was it was obviously a, a full house. But like, man, like back then, I feel like my brother and I were always getting jammed up with bad audio. Either I would go out to the usher in the lobby and complain or he would go out. But like, I remember I was so excited to see Pulp Fictions. I had built this thing on like a pedestal at this point. So when I got in there and the sound wasn't great, it was just kind of like, you, you, you fucking people are killing me. You're killing me. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't so a good what did start. you do? Did you, did you go back? Did you find another theater the next weekend? What'd you do? I probably saw it like eight more times in the theater yeah. while, while that movie, the movie played for like six months. Listen, it was budgeted at $8 million. Um, the bulk of that went to the cast because there was obviously some really great actors in this film. But I think once Bruce Willis committed, he certainly, um, Bruce Willis earned a lot of that $8 million. Let's leave it at that. No um, a good portion of the remaining funds went to construct the Jackrabbit Slims set. Uh, let's give you a little proper shout out for the Jack Rabbit Slims t-shirt that you're wearing right now. I am wearing a Jack Rabbit Slims t-shirt. It says since 1994 and it is home with a $5 milkshake. The $5 so. milkshake. The movie opened 9 million uh, opening weekend in the United States. It cumed 108 million. So that's not a bad return for an $8 million budget, 214 million worldwide. So this movie was uh, it was a huge deal. As I just said, I remember Paul playing in D.C. and I was living in D.C. at the time for like six months. It just never left. Like it was just, you know, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I would see the newspaper ads from Miramax for Pulp Fiction. It just never left town. Isn't it hard to imagine like a time when movies played like that? Because today that's amazing. It's like yeah. three or four weeks. Right. And they're gone. Yeah. They're on home video or, or streaming rather. I mean, and especially to be an independent film and do, you know, north of one hundred million dollars and two hundred and fifteen million worldwide or whatever it was. I mean, that just didn't happen back then. I mean, was there anything in the independent space that, you know, we call an indie film prior to Pulp that had this kind of cue? Nothing that I can think of. The only movie that I would say uh, that probably had a, a pretty major return for a low investment would be The Crying Game. And I want to say The client, the Crying Game maybe came out a couple years before Pulp. I don't yeah. remember the date. It feels like maybe that movie was like 92 or 93. And, and then I don't that. forget there's Blair, there's Blair Witch Project, which yeah. came out a few years later, I think. And that yeah. was made for like 50 grand and did $100 million or whatever. Yeah, that movie was obviously that, that changed um, horror films for good. Um, originally set up at TriStar Pictures, the studio head at the time, Mike Metavoy, he read the script and he called it too demented. He cited concerns about the violence and the drug use, which obviously there was. He put mm -hmm. it in turnaround and other studios passed during that process. Here's what I'll say. What the fuck, Mike Metavoy? That's that is. <laughs> I remember when I was working at Turner, um, one of our production executives, Michael Wright, was in town doing uh, you know meetings with people, and he he was asked about TNT passing on a little show called Breaking Bad back in the <laughs> uh, the early mid thousands. How that work out? How did that work out? Right? Mm. You, you think Mike Metavoy's got some regrets about passing on Pulp Fiction? It's like the guy that passed on the Beatles. Whoever passed on the Beatles, it's like, come on. Danny DeVito's Jersey Films uh, came along, and he they sent it to Harvey Weinstein at Miramax. Um, Disney had just acquired Miramax, so this was one of their very first acquisitions under that new regime. And I'm going to quote Harvey Weinstein. This is what he said about Pulp Fiction. When I read the Pulp Fiction script, I went to then-chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg and said, even though I have the right to make this, I want to clear it with you first. He read it and said, easy on the heroin scene, if you can, but that is one of the best scripts I have ever read. Even though you don't need it, I'm giving you my blessing. 
Wow. I think it's one of the best screenplays I've ever read. What do you think? Uh, absolutely. There's no question. I mean, but like put the Disney and Miramax thing together. Like here's Disney, the, the mouse house, the happiest place on earth in the magic kingdom acquiring Miramax. And then this is the film that comes across your desk right after you make that acquisition with Miramax. I mean, how's, how's Disney? <laughs> this is anything but a Disney film, right? I don't think uh, Pulp Fiction would be playing on Disney Plus anytime soon. Right? Definitely not. That's amazing <laughs> to think that how so many studios just, you know, passed on this film and then of all the ones, Disney and Miramax come along and they're the ones that, 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 that took it. And that relationship that Weinstein had, he's, he had that with Tarantino for the rest of Quentin's t- career until recently. Absolutely. And just the vision and the courage of those guys back then, Lawrence Bender, the producer, Tarantino, like, you know, even the Disney executives that were, you know, even they, though they didn't have to greenlight the film with Miramax, like, you know, that, that just, that took a lot of balls. And I, I, I think that, um, that, that's also what I love about the film is they were given permission to break all the rules that they broke and tell a story a different way. Amazing. Roger Avery, who, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, given story credit. He was an old friend of Tarantino's. They worked at the video store together it sounds like they they frequented uh, they frequently collaborated on screenplays over over time and i guess avery got a writing credit on pulp uh, which stemmed from they incorporated some part of his short film called pandemonium reigns which i have never heard of and i guess there was a piece of that film that tarantino used as part of the story for the for the pulp uh screenplay so he had you know minimal input but i guess the studio this you got to keep in mind this is this is off of reservoir dogs and the studio reportedly did not want Avery to be involved in the marketing of this film. They really wanted to position it as a Tarantino, he, as the sole artistic force behind Pulp Fiction. So they mm-hmm. they gave Tar- Tarantino the full screenplay credit, and they gave the story credit to Tarantino and Roger Avery. Sounds like Avery wasn't very happy about that, and that was the beginning of the end of, of their They franchise. never spoke again. Right? Isn't that sad? Yeah. Man. Yeah, Totally. Bruce Willis's involvement legitimized the film. It sounded like they were having a hard time getting this movie off the ground and they didn't really have a lot of big name actors. But when he um, was finally attached to it, I think that opened up a lot of doors and the, the rest of the, fa- the financing came into place uh, very, very, very quickly. Sounds like Bruce Willis wanted to play Vincent Vega, but that role at that point was already promised to Travolta. So he had to play Butch Coolidge, which was all that was left. Um, right. Tarantino had a fight like hell to cast Travolta as Vincent Vega. Um, Harvey Weinstein wanted nothing to do with John Travolta in this movie. I and mean, you got to remember in the early nineties, he was coming off of like, look, who's talking and look, who's look talking, who's talking one, two, and three. There wasn't much in that guy's career. This, I mean, everybody <laughs> celebrates this film is what revived Travolta's career. I mean, do you just remember him being hosed down by Jimmy when he took all his clothes off and you saw Travolta without his shirt on and you're like, Oh man, John Travolta, John Travolta got fat. <laughs> <laughs> but it brought him back from the dead, man. He only, he took $150,000 salary for that film. He was, you know, worth $20 million otherwise. Let's think about that for a second. This is a movie that Tarantino had a fight to get Travolta in this movie. This movie changed the course of Travolta's career in like every way imaginable. Remember like what a run he went on in the mid, like he did Get Shorty after this. He did Broken Arrow. He was doing like all those feel-good dramas for Touchstone. Travolta was massive in the mid-late 90s. He was hot in the 90s. He was dead in the 80s, you know, after coming off a big 70s for John Travolta. I mean, he had nothing going for him the entire 1980s. But Tarantino's known for that. He's known for resuscitating a lot of people's careers. He did it for Robert Forster and Jackie Brown. He did it for Pam Greer and Jackie Brown. He did it for Kurt Russell. I mean, he's done that for a lot of actors. he's, He's one of those guys that everybody wants to... Wants to work with, right? Big time, no question. I mean, the guy's a talent, and I he just he put this cast together. There's such a 
incredible cast. Like all the cameos and everything is just incredible. Samuel L. Jackson apparently was was sort of told that he was going to play Jules Winfield. But then he started hearing rumblings that actor Paul Calderon was being considered for the performance. So Samuel Jackson flew to L.A. to audition, and he made it very clear that he was going to be Jules. And, and again, this is what he was reportedly said to say in the audition. Do you think you are going to give this part to somebody else? I'm going to blow you motherfuckers away. And I guess he brought out like a fake gun or something like that <laughs> during his little reading. And he obviously got the got the role. And again, amazing catapulted him as well, right? I mean, he had done some stuff prior to Pulp Fiction, but nothing. No, put him on the map in a big way. I mean, and especially just the the creative and beautiful and eloquent way, use of the F word. I mean, talk about F-bombs with Sam Jackson. Like, he just completely legitimized the word in independent film and its many, many uses and, and uh, inflections. I, I it, it was poetry, man. And everybody just talked about it. And it was, you know, often imitated. I'm sorry. Uh, I I didn't get your name. I got yours. Uh, Vincent. Right, but but I, I never got you. My name's Pitt, and your ass ain't talking your way out of this shit. No, no, no. I just want you to know how. I just want you to know how sorry we are that that things got so fucked up with us and, and Mr. Wallace. When we we got into this thing with the best intentions, really, I never. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about best intentions. What's the matter? Oh, you were finished. Oh, well, allow me to retort. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch! No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? <laughs> yes, you did! Yes, you did, Brett! You tried to fuck him. No. Well, Marcellus no. Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. You read the Bible, Brett? Yes! Well, there's this passage I got memorized. It sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the critical reception and awards. Um, Con Film Festival. How do you is, is it Palm Door? Is that how you say it, Jason? The Palm the Palm Door. You roll with those people. I don't roll with those people. The, the, the Palm Door. So it wins the Palm Door, which is like best picture at the Con Film Festival. 
Tarantino acknowledged that night that he was surprised at winning it because his films usually drive uh, juries apart rather than unite them. But you told me a while back that you had a fun story at, at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. So I, when I was in film school in South Carolina, Kodak at the time, if you guys remember that company, they had this fellowship for American film students to go to the Cannes Film Festival and work in the American Pavilion, which was ostensibly the hospitality center for all the American VIPs, celebrities, filmmakers, whatever. And um, you submitted this long application, but a friend of mine had gone and won this fellowship the year prior. This is 1996, by the okay. way. So this is after Pulp had won. Yep. Um, Train Spotting was the big film in 96 that, that premiered in one. And my friend told me, listen, like, forget about all you're doing in film school. Don't send them your GPA and your trans- transcripts. They could give a fuck. Just tell them you know how to bartend because I was a bartender in college and tell them you know how to work a fax machine because that's all this job really is. So fast forward, I get the gig. I bartend in the American Pavilion and work the fax machine. The the deal was you work six hours a day and then you have literally the same pass that Quentin Tarantino and Steven Spielberg have to see anything that you have like all access that's to awesome. every film. So it's an incredible trade-off. Yep. They pay for everything except your flight and it was brilliant. And when I was there, um, being an American film student and everybody coming through the American Pavilion, they loved that we were there as American film students. This is pre-internet, pre-social media. To have these random American kids working there was, was a big deal. So they invited us to all the parties. We were hanging out with all the celebrities late at night. And I got to hang out with Lawrence Bender, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Mark Wahlberg one night at the Majestic Hotel. And just shooting the shit with these guys. And Lawrence Bender was like the most, I was most excited to see him because Leonardo DiCaprio had done Gilbert Grape and yep. hadn't been in Titanic yet. Yep. He shot it, but not, it had not been out until later that year. So it was just this epic moment of just um, gallivanting around Cannes and getting to hang out with the likes of Lawrence Bender and being an American film student running around, uh, running around Cannes for the first time. It was the first international trip that I ever made. And Dennis, the very, very, very first thing that I did when I landed in Nice and then went to Cannes, you've been to Cannes for the Lions, right? For the advertising? I have not. I've done a lot of other industry stuff, but I've never done that. We got to get you to Cannes for the Lions, which is a separate advertising festival. Sure. But, sure. but there, there is a cross from the Palais where everything is hosted. There is a McDonald's in a square uh, literally across the street from where all the films are premiering. And the very first thing I did was run to McDonald's to see if it's actually called a Royale with cheese. <laughs> and, and was it? You know what? It is, but it's not a Royale with cheese. It's just a Royale cheese. They just call it a uh, Royale no cheese. Way. Okay. Yeah. And and I was so excited that it was actually called that and ordered myself Royale cheese and fries. And that was it. That's the equivalent of people coming to LA. And, and the first thing they do when they get out of LAX is go to In-N-Out Burger. It's the same, <laughs> same kind of deal, right? And for those totally. of you guys listening, he's hanging out with Lawrence Bender. Lawrence Bender was the producer of Pulp Fiction. He was the producer mm-hmm. of Reservoir Dogs. He's one of Tarantino's best friends. And, you know, the, those early movies were all Lawrence Bender productions. So if you're an American film student, you, like he is, I mean, he, he, he was everything with what he had accomplished to date and with pulp and, and dogs before that, you know, it's, it was, uh, it was like meeting my, you know, idol. That's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. Um, and that's a great year for uh, train spotting too. That's the Danny Boyle film. That's that, that movie. That was amazing. I actually got Leonardo DiCaprio into that party. So we were standing outside the party trying to get in and crash and nobody recognized Leonardo DiCaprio. Publicist comes running over when he sees that Leonardo DiCaprio is having trouble getting in. There's two of him, uh, him and a buddy, and there's three of us. And this guy says, Oh my God, Mr. DiCaprio, I'm so sorry. Come right in. How many of you are there? And I said, there's five of us and we're really fucking pissed. And the five of us got ushered in. I was with Leo's entourage and got ushered into the party. And Leo turned to me and said, nice job, man. See you around. 
And that was my moment with Leonardo DiCaprio. You're the East End cowboy. Of course they get of course you're gonna get DiCaprio into the into that. That's that's fantastic. I knew how to I knew how to crash a few gates back in my day. Hey man, and you you've been rolling with celebs for many, many years since then. So that I'm sure there's many others that you you've hung out with, but that's a that's a different podcast. <laughs> this film received outstanding critical acclaim. I don't even know how else to put it. It was it was literally the top of many, many critics' year-end best of lists, but I'm gonna, there's a couple of people that I really respect uh, as writers, and I wanted to read out. Desson Howe, who was uh, the chief critic at the Washington Post, Pulp Fiction is everything it is said to be, brilliant and brutal, funny and exhilarating, jaw-droppingly cruel, and disarmingly sweet. Tarantino has produced a work of mesmerizing entertainment. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone, Tarantino's twist on the pulp genre is a damn near work of art. And Roger Ebert, Howard Hawks once gave definition of a good movie, three good scenes, no bad scenes. Few movies in recent years have had more good scenes than Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. Pulp was uh, selected for preservation in the Library of Congress National Film Registry in 2013. In 2000, the American Film Institute ranked this as the 94th greatest movie of all time. Jason, that's not bad making the top 100 after 13 years. I mean, that movie wasn't even out that long, and it was already ranked number 94 of all time. Yeah, where do you, I'd say it moves up now. I mean, for me, it's it's in the top 20, top 25. Where is it for you personally? I don't want to give too much away to the hackers who may or may not be listening to your podcast, but when people ask you know, the security question on your credit card, what's your favorite film? I do put Pulp Fiction, <laughs> <laughs> along with the street I grew up in the name of my and first you, car. And your first car, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, there. You know, for me, I think it's just, it was such a transformative film in my in the that juncture in my life with deciding to go to film school and just what it meant for me. Like it just really connected with me at all levels and and the dialogue and the character storytelling in particular, I just, you know, it's right up there. It's, it's easily top five. I really like this movie quite a bit. I love dogs. Lance and I got into a big debate on that episode about dogs, about where Pulp, where yeah. Pulp sits. And I know I had a, I had a pretty cold take and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is moving up the list for me pretty pretty quickly as it's on all the time. And I've watched it quite a bit. And I think over time, that movie is going to be right up there with with Dogs and Pulp as maybe his three best films. Although yeah. Inglorious Bastards is probably in that in that short list as well. Yeah, I mean, you have to give it credit for, like, we've talked about this a little bit, but like in the 90s and what was going on, like there were these, you know, look, Forrest Gump, you know, was that year as well. And, you know, all these other things that came out that were these just mass produced kind of, you know, catering to everybody, the common denominator of what, you know, American film could or should be and whatever that meant. And I think Tarantino just broke all the rules and and redefined a category and just created a lane for independent filmmakers to be successful and gave them the courage to start telling stories like they weren't before. It inspired a whole generation of film. And I, th- I think that's why it ranks so high for me. It just, it, it, it gets so much more credit than just the work itself. It, it's really what it, how, how, you know, how it defined that, that era. There's like a whole cottage industry of, of um, independent crime films that this movie um, gave birth to and a lot of, a lot of ripoffs and a lot of bad ripoffs. Um, a couple of last things on, on the film before we dig into the movie. Seven Academy Award nominations, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Travolta, Best Supporting Actor for Samuel L. Jackson, Supporting Actress for Uma Thurman, Film Editing, and it won for Best Original Screenplay for Tarantino. That year, Forrest Gump won Best Picture and Best Director for Robert Zemeckis. So let's let's get this out of the way now because this is this is an interesting one. The Oscars that year, I think a couple of other movies that, that were nominated were The Quiz Show, Shawshank Redemption, I think Four Weddings and a Funeral might have been up for it mm-hmm. that year, but Forrest Gump wins for Best Picture over Pulp Fiction. Did the Academy get it right? What do you think? 
Look, I mean, I, you know, as we just said, I, I think it, they probably did back then for the time and place in which that film came out and what it meant for the country. And it was such a feel good film and great storytelling. And I love, I love Forrest Gump. I did too. And it's one of the, yep. it's one of the only films where I will say that the film is much better than the book. Because after I saw the film, I went and read the book, which is like this little pamphlet and you can read it in an afternoon quickly. Yep. Um, and the story that was done on screen and what, you know, Tom Hanks did in that was, was also very groundbreaking but it was just a much different vibe of a film, much more highly produced. And the, just the investment in the soundtrack alone and what they had to spend to get all those hits. And I know we'll talk about the music of Pulp, but like, I think what Pulp accomplished was much more best picture winning, but what Forrest Gump did for that particular time also is not a bad nod. The summer of 94, I worked on the Gump movie because I was Paramount Pictures. It was one of my clients back then. So I handled all the radio and, and print advertising for Forrest Gump in the DC region. So like, again, Gump was another movie that played for months and months and months. But I remember, you know, July, August of 94, everybody was talking about Forrest Gump. That's all people yeah. were talking about. People were wearing the t-shirt. They were quoting it. Life is like a box of chocolates, the whole deal, right? The soundtrack, I ran out and bought the soundtrack, right? And I, I sort of feel like that movie owned pop culture for a good three months until this movie came along. And then Pulp Fiction came along. And Gump got set aside, and now it was Pulp. And Pulp was all people were talking about for, like, a good three or four months. I mean, did you go to a party at the end of 94 and not hear the Pulp soundtrack being played? I mean, it just – No, God, not at all. I mean, I even had a Forrest Gump voice that I did back then, you know, <laughs> about, like, box of chocolates and peas and carrots. Um, but I also was doing a lot of Vincent Vega and Sam Jackson, too. So Before we move on, I want to ask you this. You know, where does Pulp Fiction rank – in the what I would say the most culturally significant films of the 90s. I have a short list, and I'm curious if you have a list of like, if you had to think about the decade of the 90s, right, of, of major movies and the impact they had, Pope is absolutely on that list, right? Probably very high, to your point, on that list. What else is on that list? I have probably a longer list, and I broke them out into like little categories because I had to really think this through, and there's so many films of the 90s that meant different things, I think, culturally for us. Like, you know, on one hand, there's like that raw indie film genre of like Pulp, of course. There's Clerks, Swingers, which I know you're going to do on the pod coming up, which was an awesome film. Uh, Fargo, Train Spotting, Big Lebowski, like those low budget but great character dialogue storytelling yeah. vibes, like they're on there. Then I've got, you know, even what The Lion King, Jurassic Park, and Toy Story did with like telling us like what computers could do to help sure. us tell animated film stories. There's like the mafia genre of like the, the good fellas, which I think is one of the best films of all time in, in my top five. Yep. Casino. You've got the seven natural born killers, Fight Club, Blair Witch Project, horror, suspense, sort of thriller genre. So I put those in there. Um, and then comedy, like something about Mary was another film. When I walked out of that, I was like, OK, this is like next level. I, that was the greatest movie I've ever seen. I literally remember saying that in the you know mid to late 90s when that came out. I love your list. The only one I would add to that, I had Goodfellas, I had Jurassic, I would add Titanic. Titanic for sure. Yeah, right. that's a that's a great one. Yeah. It's funny that you uh, you referenced Natural Born Killers, and I don't think I've ever told you this, but that same intern at the at the PR firm, he had us because Woody Harrelson was one of our clients, and Woody was shooting Natural Born Killers, the Oliver Stone movie. That's for those that don't know. That movie is based on an original screenplay from Tarantino, and then Oliver Stone got involved mm -hmm. and he changed it um, dramatically. But I read the original. QT draft of natural born killers, dude, if you ever get your hands on that, I'm sure you could find it online somewhere. What I, listen, I think natural born killers as a film has got some really interesting things that, that Oliver Stone did with it. I mean, for what it is, I don't particularly yeah. love it, but if you had read the, the version that Quentin wrote 
and it's again, it's dark and it's funny. It's got a lot of the same kind of energy that Pulp has. You would be like, I can't believe they let Oliver Stone direct this movie. Like, yeah, that's insane. It's, it's shocking. And in the hands of another filmmaker, I think NBK would have been one of those movies of the nineties that like everybody was like, this, this is at almost at the level of, of Pulp Fiction. But I, I don't know if I'm just old and grumpy, but like those films in the nineties were so they just, they, they transformed the industry for different reasons. And I don't, I just don't feel like, uh, you know, in mass, like films are being made like that or at this level or with the emphasis on just good old fashioned screenwriting and character development and storytelling and dialogue and all the things that Pulp and a lot of these other films had done. Like, you know, think of Clerks or, you know, like some of the most quotable movies are, you know, came out of this decade. I mean, how many times are we still quoting swingers? You're a beautiful baby, baby, and chicks dig you. It's like the Rain Man suite. We're going to be up by midnight. (laughs) It's a seismic change for storytelling and independent cinema. That's how significant the release of this film is. So for our younger listeners, Jason, you know, we can't stress enough. You and I were of the age where, you know, I'm I'm very appreciative that I was at that age where I can appreciate when this movie came out, right? Because it was such a big deal. So for our younger listeners today, talk about, and this is a tall order, but talk about in your own words, like the impact that Pulp Fiction had. I mean, listen, you, you just t- talked at the start of this conversation about the impact it had on Jason Wagenheim as as one person, right? Now, think about that and replicate that. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it, it, you know, we talked about this a little bit already, but it really helped pave the way for just for, for low budget independent filmmaking and focusing on story and character and dialogue and all the things that we've been talking about. And there just wasn't a lot of um, of of people doing that or, or providing that creative license. And I think that it just, it provided so much courage to young filmmakers that like, yes, I can do this too. And created a whole, you know, industry around um, independent film. And it really propped it up and celebrated it at a way that it hadn't been before. And I think that was pretty groundbreaking and, you know, really important. Like even, even the music, which I know we'll talk about, like these really obscure eclectic tracks that you never, ever heard of before found their way onto this soundtrack really because they didn't have the money to go out and, you know, spend on rights for, uh, for the hits. And, you know, that was, that was groundbreaking. Um, I just think on every level it helped define, uh, you know, the industry and, and prop up independent filmmaking like nothing had before. And I always ask myself, like, why did this come along now? Like, why wasn't some? Why didn't somebody else come along and figure out that we needed to have those 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 songs that you just referenced, right? Or like the scene when they show Eric Stoltz at his house and he's eating fruit root cereal, right? You know, I'm I'm a kid of the '70s. I love the monster cereals. I loved Frankenberry and Count Chocula and Booberry. And Fruit Root was like the was like the cousin, right? It wasn't quite as popular yet. That's the cereal that Tarantino chooses to put in Pulp Fiction because it's like he he got that right. And I, as a 23 year old, I got that he got that, and that made yeah. me get it even more because I was like, this guy, honestly, I, he was the filmmaking voice of my generation, and it was simple as that. And like, it's amazing to me that he came along when he did, and like that nobody else beat him to that prior to yeah. I, I just think all those cultural references, like, you know, we go back to the IQ of Vincent and Jules and the conversations and the debates that they're having around, like, what is a TV pilot or the debate over the foot massage? Like, how many times did you say that you're the foot fucking master? You don't be tickling or nothing. You know, like there was there was the, the obviously, you know, the, uh, the 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 religious transformation, the salvation of Jules that happened. Like this was like some high IQ shit, some like real conversation and it really humanized these characters 
characters that you otherwise were meant to hate in any other film. And that had just not been done before. And all those cultural references, like around, like Eric Stoltz is wearing a speed racer shirt, like under his bathrobe, or there's like the clutch cargo cartoon that's on with like the Butch story with the watch when, when Butch is a kid. Like there's all these little moments and nods to things that you recognize that you don't even know. You don't even know you really consciously recognize it. You just know it feels comfortable and you know that it feels familiar. And that's the beauty of what I think he does with all these little, you know, call them Easter eggs or little nods that he makes to pop culture references in his, in his film. But let me ask you, cause he did that too in Reservoir Dogs. And that only came out two years prior and it was a smaller movie. Um, you know, not as, not as commercially successful, but widely acclaimed, but like those, th- those ingredients are first found in Reservoir Dogs because there's a lot of pop culture chatter, a lot of characters, the nonlinear storytelling, the way the movie jumps around in time. Um, Why do you think it didn't maybe work as well or it wasn't as well received um, in Dogs as it was in Pulp Fiction? Do you think it was just more like it was a bigger movie, had Travolta and Sam Jackson and Bruce Willis, and it just had a bigger scope? You think that's what it is? I think that Reservoir Dogs was the warm-up act. I think we probably needed Reservoir Dogs to appreciate Pulp Fiction because it's, it's sort of like paved the way and opened the door for this type of storytelling, this type of character development. All the thing that the music and the soundtrack is, you know, equally as phenomenal and obscure, except for Stuck in the Middle with You. Um, you know, I, I, I think it probably paved the way to make, uh, to give us all the, the license that Pulp Fiction was, um, you know, was, was the real deal. I actually saw Reservoir Dogs after I saw Pulp Fiction. I didn't catch dogs before, before Pulp. I'm fortunate enough that I saw them sequentially. I saw them in the order that they were all released, but, and I was a, I was a big dogs guy, but I certainly, I recall the critics definitely saying that Pulp brought back a lot of the same um, you know, elements that he used quite well in Reservoir Dogs, but I think he probably perfected them in Pulp Fiction. But, you know, there was a lot of chatter that was he like a one trick pony? Like, is this his thing? And he has these people that have these funny conversations, but like, what, what, when is he going to make that next, you know, great adult film that's going to be a departure? And I, I, I think yeah. Jackie Brown was probably that film because that was very much a love story. It had elements of the first two in terms of some of the humor, but definitely a different kind of story. And it wasn't even his story. He was adapting Elmore Leonard. You know, yeah, no question. And Elmer Leonard, by the way, I think is great. I was reading Elmer Leonard, but long before I saw, you know, Get Shorty in, in film and, and Pulp Fiction. And I think Elmer Leonard was a great inspiration for a lot of what Tarantino did. And that the type of characters that you see in Dogs and and Pulp really kind of come out and Get Shorty in some of his other books. This is a film that has chapters, right? I mean, as a, as a film student guy, you, you must have appreciated this. It opens up with this prologue in the diner, right? And then we have our three stories. It's, it's Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife the gold watch, and then the Bonnie situation, which was originally titled Jules, Vincent, Jimmy, and the Wolf, which I did not Mm. know. Which one of those stories is your favorite? You know, they're all so good, but I just, I love that sequence with Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife with Mia Wallace. Um, I, I, I love that chapter. And I think the whole, the whole first date scene when they go out to Jack Rabbit Slims and, and what happens before, during, and after that is just this like nail biting sort of like, holy shit, I can't believe that just happened moment. So I, I think that's probably it for me. I also, I do really, really love the relationship between uh, Butch and, and um, Marcellus Wallace and what, you know, they absolutely hate each other and want to kill each other. And then how they have to come together with the rowdy little redneck Zed and Maynard in the bottom of the, the, the basement of the pawn shop or gun shop. Um, that's pretty epic. I mean, these, these two characters from, you know, coming from complete opposite ends of liking each other to having to, you know, get on the same side of the sword. 
honor among thieves, right? I mean, that's sort of a, a big element in this film and, and even in dogs to an extent, right? Yeah. It's like, what's that code of conduct between you and your and your brethren? What's yours, Dennis? Where, where do you fit? Vincent Vega and, and Marcellus Wallace's wife, that whole sequence when they go to Jack Rabbit Slim's, I think the movie is like just firing fastballs at that point. And again, this movie, yeah. this is a movie that opens tremendously well with the opening sequence with, with Jules and Vincent. But when he takes her to that restaurant and, and they walk in and the way the camera is just sort of like, you know, moving back and forth around the restaurant and you see like the little matchbox cars and, and, uh, and, and they, the camera's tracking Vincent. He's sort of, he's obviously on heroin and he's, he's taking it in and she's like 20 steps ahead of him. And he almost, he's walking as if he doesn't even know where he is and she has to get his attention. But the way they're playing the music, it's it's just there's, man, that's just that, and even the production design of of that studio set of what they did for Jack Rabbit Slims is just you know I, if you if you kind of unpack the sequence for a second though, like this whole chapter, like let's just let's just take it as like what it is through the lens of a love story. So yeah. and and the music and and Mia Wallace and and how they how she presents. So he goes to pick her up, and when he when he walks into the house, the song what's, what song is playing? Do you remember what's playing? It's Son of a Preacher Man, Dusty Springfield. So she's watching him. You don't really see her. You see her like bright red lips. You see her hair from behind. He's making himself a drink. It's like this whole first date sort of awkward moment. You got this like, what, what is Son of a Preacher Man? It's a song about like just innocence and running through the fields barefoot. And it's like young love. And it's like, you know, this, this, you know, you're a teenager and you're just like in, you're, you're finding that first love and that first passion. And that's kind of where they're at in their relationship. She comes downstairs and you get this close up of her just lifting her heel. Yep. Her feet are dirty. Like she's almost just run through the fields. What's more carefree and innocent than just having like dirty feet and being a kid and running and playing in the fields, right? Yeah. Then they go to Jackrabbit Slims and they have this whole moment with the dance and the twist uh, thing, whatever. And now she's like having the time of her life and the song that's playing is all about teenage love, teenage wedding. The old folks, old folks wish them well. You can tell that Pierre did truly love the Mademoiselle. And it's like, this is the highlight of their life. They are just living it up. They are having just every single dream come true as like young lovers. And it's like the highlight of their lives, right? Then they go back to the house. Yep. She is um, finds the heroine. The song that's playing before she finds the heroine is Urge Overkill, the Neil Diamond song. Yep. You'll be a woman soon. That is literally about a woman's friends and family warning them to stay away from a man because the boy's no good. And you'll never know what you're going to find when I come around. The boy's no good. I mean, all that kind of stuff. And they're basically warning her that this is trouble. And that's exactly what happens. And then at the end of the sequence, after the Eric Stoltz scene and the, you know, adrenaline shot to the heart, which shocked us all, um, she's barefoot yet again, walking home with this shit kicked out of her. And she tells her joke about yep. the mom who made a pop, made a baby tomato in the ketchup. Right. Yep. And you just see this entire relationship unfold through the sequence of these three songs and these three moments. And I just think that was just masterful. And, you know, it's, it's incredible storytelling and you believed every second of it and you were rooting for them in that relationship. And then he just blows her a kiss and sends her off. I heard you did a pilot. That was my 15 minutes. What was it? It was a show about a team of female secret agents called Fox Force 5. What? Fox Force 5. Fox, as in we're a bunch of foxy chicks. Force, as in we're a force to be reckoned with. And five, as in there's one, two, three, four, five of us. There was a blonde one, Somerset O'Neill. She was a leader. The Japanese fox was a kung fu master. 
black girl was a demolition expert. French Fox's speciality was sex. What was your specialty? Knives. Character I played, Raven McCoy. Her background was she grew up raised by circus performers. According to the show, she was the deadliest woman in the world with a knife. And she knew a zillion old jokes. Her grandfather, an old vaudevillian, taught her. And if we would have got picked up, it would have worked in a gimmick where every show I would have told another joke. No animal jokes? Well, we only got the chance to say one because we only did one show. Tell me. It's corny. Don't be that way. Tell me. Nah, you wouldn't like it and I'd be embarrassed. You'd be embarrassed. You told like 50 million people and you can't tell me? I promise I won't laugh. That's what I'm afraid of, Vince. That's not what it meant. You know it. No, I'm definitely not going to tell you because it's been built up too much. What a joke. The thing about that sequence, I, I want to go back and, and go back to the restaurant for a second, but the, the, the amount of patience and restraint as a filmmaker that Tarantino shows in that sequence, especially as a, a second film, right? It's not even like when they walk to their little car table and then they finally sit down and Steve Buscemi comes along and he's their waiter, but like, it's like them looking at the menu, right? And and he he sees the you know the, the he gets the skirt steak or whatever it is, and she orders the shake, and like he now rolls the cigarette, right? And she watches him rolling the cigarette, and he takes the time to do that, and he gives it to her, and he makes another one, and and they start having their conversation about you know she goes to Amsterdam once a month and and so forth, right? Then she talks about the show and the pilot and what happened. It's her fifteen minutes of fame. All this just takes a, a long time, and it's not in any rush. Like and and then they show her get up because they have that conversation about uncomfortable silences. And she's like, I'm going to go to the restroom to powder my nose. When, when I come back, you better have something to say. And then the camera shows her as she's doing this slow-mo and they're playing the, the surf music again. And she's walking, you see her hair like waving and she goes into the restroom. Right. And then, and they show him, it's just like, and then she comes back and then the conversation resumes and they have this, yeah. another deep conversation before the dance sequence. And then to your point, when they go back to her house, Marcellus's house and the urge overkill sequence when they're playing the music and he's in the restroom. Uh, other directors wouldn't necessarily show her dancing across her living room, wearing his raincoat. Like it's not serving the story. It's not necessary, but it adds to this vibe. It's to, to your point, this very special evening. These are two people that, that live and breathe in the criminal underworld and they sort of are playing by their own rules can do whatever they want. And the fact yeah. that he lets that play out as, as patiently as he does and doesn't move it along any faster. It's you sort of just unpack something that I think he does beautifully in all of his films. And this one, you know, is, is no different where there's a lot of dialogue and conversation that does not matter or move the film forward. And it's, I mean, the whole, like back to the foot massage conversation, like here are these two guys taking shotguns out of the back of the trunk. Um, or they, you know, they, they say they should have had shotguns by the yeah. way. And they, and they didn't. And there's that scene that he's used in other, or that camera angle that he's used in other films like Reservoir Dogs, where it's like shot from the bottom of the trunk, like up at them. And they're having this whole conversation, like, again, really high IQ stuff, the debate over the foot massage and Marce- and, and, and Tony Rocky Horror getting thrown out of the window. And they're about to go get Marcellus Wallace's case and face this total danger, you know, this yep. cannon that's hiding in a bathroom. And like they're moving the you're you're completely with them and following them through this whole you know prelude to this 
epic event that's going to happen. And the dialogue really means nothing to the story. It just shows you how intelligent they are. And these, these cultural references, I think, really do move the film along. And they put you in the middle of it and just make these characters feel super real. Even the way the movie opens, when you know, and you know, as soon as that film starts and they have the opening sequence in the diner and then they go to the opening credits, right? And, you know, the way the credits are, are, are sequenced, you have two songs in, 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 the, in the credits, right? And, and it's sort of like, the fonts change and he's got the cast list and it's going up the screen. And it's just so like, it's just so radically different than anything you, you you've seen. Right. And then all of a sudden the credits are over and, and jungle boogie goes from the soundtrack to the car radio. And they're in this car. You're picking up with these two guys are about to drive to this hit. He just thrusts you into this moving car and you don't even understand like who these people are. And like, that alone, you just knew as a film goer that you're, you're going to see something special. And at this point, what is it like 11 minutes into this movie? Totally. He does it throughout the whole film. And I think that's the beauty of what he does. And, you know, you know, as well as I, the idea of the willing suspension of disbelief and you just can't believe the shitty day or two that these characters have had. And, and this, the, 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 this comedy, this dark comedy of just events that happens and unfolds, but you believe it and you're with them and you're rooting for them because he really gives you a chance to get to know, to get to know them at a human level beyond just like who these thugs are. And there's a lot of other crime movies and thug movies and mafia movies. And you never really see that kind of character development or, or dialogue. What you see is a lot of the action that they take and a lot of the killing and the murder and the blood and it's gratuitous or whatever but you never really get like to feel for those characters the way that you know tarantino makes you do and i think in 94 with a second film that i think we as moviegoers probably were not accustomed to tarantino's um rhythm of speech and you know he can be a bit verbose as a writer and i i would i mean that but i I think he's a phenomenal writer but like i think later films in his career that that writing sometimes i feel like he overwrites a little bit and maybe that the characters and the and the dialogue go on maybe a little longer than they need to but in pulp it was so fresh and original and it was just so welcoming and then all of a sudden you've got title cards for each one of these stories and you're just sort of like it just felt it just felt like i just wanted to get up and just like grab the guy next to me in the movie theater and be like can you fucking believe what we're seeing? Like, this is just not something you see. Yeah. And, th- and again, it's back to that very first time that you saw it because you didn't know that you were watching something out of order and you didn't know how it all came together. And when Vincent gets shot by Butch the next day, you know, after the he throws the boxing match, you're just like, holy shit. Like, is Vincent really like, is he, how can he be dead? Because like, we just, <laughs> we're still seeing like we're, we're, he's still here, you know? And it, it was, it was wild shit. Butch, I got something for you. This watch I got here was first purchased by your great-grandfather during the First World War. It was bought in a little general store in Knoxville, Tennessee, made by the first company to make wristwatches. Up till then, people just <laughs> carried pocket watches. It was bought by private dope boy Orion Coolidge on the day he set sail for Paris. This was your great-grandfather's war watch, and he wore it every day he was in that war. He'd done his duty, went home to your great-grandmother, took the watch off, put an old coffee can, and in that can it stayed till your granddad, Dane Coolidge, was called upon by his country to go overseas and fight the Germans once again. It's time to call it World War II. Great-grandfather gave this watch to your granddad for good luck. 
Unfortunately, Dane's luck wasn't as good as his old man's. Dane was a Marine, and he was killed, along with all the other Marines at the Battle of Wake Island. Granddad was facing death. He knew it. None of those boys had any illusions, but they were leaving that island alive, so three days before the Japanese took the island, your granddad asked a gunner on an Air Force transport named a Wanaki, a man he'd never met before in his life, to deliver to his infant son. We'd never seen the flesh. He's called watch. Three days later, your granddad was dead, but Wanaki kept his word. After the war was over, he paid a visit to your grandmother, delivering to your infant father his dad's gold watch. This watch. This watch was on your daddy's wrist when he was shot down on that Hanoi. He was captured from the Vietnamese prison camp. He knew that if the gooks ever saw the watch, they'd be confiscated, taken away. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any slope's going to put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright. So he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. Then after seven years, I was sent home to my family Jason, I, I remember sitting in that movie theater in 94 and hearing people just laugh out loud during the walk-in speech when, when the big joke finally hits at the latter end of the speech when he talks about how they, they wore it up their ass. And, and like people are like, wait, what? Is this, did he really just say that about this watch? And like that, I mean, talk about a guy that comes in for, we probably did one day, right? I would imagine walk-in was on set for a day for that. He couldn't have done. He looked so young I, when I saw it again uh, recently. I was like, "Oh my god, Christopher Walken is so young!" It's an unbelievable uh, performance, and it's what four minutes or something like that. And he just he comes in, he just does his part, and he just walks out of the movie and sort of hijacks uh, a good chunk of that movie at that point in time. One of the things I noticed when I revisited this film is the the physical performances that Quentin gets from his actors. Um, and I want to hear you know from you as well. Like, what what are some of these things that sort of jump out to you about this movie? But one of the things I noticed is these stares that a lot of their, a lot of his actors and obviously acting is all about p- physical performance and you need to stare, but like the stare that Samuel L. Jackson uses as, as Jules in the beginning of that film, when he's about to give that speech to, to Brett and he turns around and he's about to shoot him. Like he's just like, he's ferocious in, in, in totally. that sequence. Right. I mean, well, how about before that, when he's washing down the tasty beverage, the Sprite, and he's, he's just giving again, him a look. similar to your Jackrabbit Slims, you know, um, it, with, with the patience that we have to have as viewers to, to watch this, but it is a long slurp to get to the bottom of that Sprite, that tasty beverage. And his eyes are just like, just, he's got the hair and the eyes and the sweat. And you're just like, it's incredible. And then like, I mean, and he builds off of that, that sequence at, at Marcellus's um, place where um, Vincent it comes in with, with Jules, Jules goes to the bathroom and, and Butch is over there talking to uh, Marcellus. And then uh, Bruce Willis comes over to the, to the, to the bar to buy his cigarettes. Right. And like, they have that little exchange between he and Vincent. And then like, Vincent's like, you know, you heard me punchy, you know, I'm not your friend Palooka. And he walks mm-hmm. away, but then the camera like pivots across 
Bruce Willis, when he's given Travolta this like really dirty look, like I'm going to fuck this guy up if I ever see him again. That is an incredible stare by Bruce Willis. There's the stare that Vincent makes when he's high on heroin and he's driving to go pick up Mia and he's in his car. And like, and that, and that was one of the uh, sequences where I think Tarantino as a director uses like fake background when Vincent's driving, right? Mm-hmm. It's got the weird lighting and you could tell that it's like a fake pulpy background. And he's doing that intentionally as opposed to shooting it in a real car in a real street in LA. These are really conscious decisions that he makes. Uh, Esmeralda Villalobos, you know, with the taxi driver, it was the same sort of like wonky yep. old school fake background and, and the stare with her in the rear view mirror with Butch talking about, you know, killing a man and what that felt like. So why is it okay that he does that there, right? But then the scene when Travolta is driving to Eric Stoltz's house to Lance's place and, you know, she's in the back seat. And that is a, that's a real shot in a real street in L.A. And it's the middle of the night. It's late. But that is real. But the taxi cab is not real. It's just those are like these little nuances that he makes as a as a filmmaker. Yeah. I'm not sure if that lands with everybody. Their big stare, I think, was really it was a great scene was at the end with, in the Hawthorne Cafe with um, with Tim Roth. And, and Sam Jackson, you know, sitting across a table with a gun and just Tim Roth's like blank stare, like, holy shit, I'm fucked. Who did I just rob? And, you know, Vince uh, uh, Jules, rather, is just having his moment of clarity. He says he's in a moment of transition. Otherwise, you know, Tim Roth would be dead by now. Um, and I think that, that that relationship between the two of them in this moment of reckoning for Jules and his redemption is uh, is very clear. Doing the research on this film, I found out that when Christopher Walken gives that speech about the watch, there's that one point when he's holding it up and he's like, this watch. And then there's like a five-second beat. The reason why that scene is that long is because he forgot his lines and he was in his head. He was trying to recover in time before they had to stop shooting. And he and he found it and he kept and he kept talking. But Tarantino loved that pause so much because it looked intentional when it wasn't that he kept wow. it, he kept it in the final shot. It was amazing. It was a great scene. And you're right, because it started off like this beautiful story about this watch and his birthright and this heirloom and things that have been passed down. And then when he says he hit it in the only place that he could. In his ass. his ass. You're just like, what? Did, did that just happen? And I think the film is just filled with either dialogue moments or like these really shocking moments when if you just if you if you took a second not to pay attention, you were like a double take. Like what just happened? Marvin getting shot in the face, you know, after uh, in the back of the car um, is, is a moment. Um, the whole Bonnie situation, that whole that whole scene, I think, is just filled with those types of surprises. Um, how about the fact that. Everything seems to have happened before breakfast, right? Like these gangsters do more before breakfast than most gangsters do all year. And <laughs> I think that like there's there's so much about the film, like these moments that where you're thinking to yourself, like what is actually happening here? But it's just brilliant. And you're watching it unfold on screen. I mean, while Fabian is going to get her pancakes, right? Butch is out and he goes through the entire experience of going to his apartment, shoot, shooting Vincent meeting up with the two hillbilly guys and and meeting up all of that all that happens while fabian's having breakfast that whole episode is supposed to probably takes place in maybe an hour's time or something like that right totally what is what is uh brett and flock of seagulls and marvin doing having burgers from big kahuna burger at 7 22 in the morning and what is harvey keitel is winston wolf doing at 8.30 in the morning in a full tuxedo in some hotel room party where everybody's like dressed to the nines and he's got to get to Jimmy's house, which is 30 minutes away, but he'll be there in I'll 10. Be there in 10. <laughs> you think that was the morning of a late night party or do you think that was an actual a morning event? I think it was some morning event. I read in some of the research that um, he was gambling and it was some sort of like hotel casino thing happening. I don't know. 
And it's just like those little things when they show him drink the coffee after Tarantino gives him the coffee as Jimmy and he makes that little smile. And you can almost see like Tarantino's reaction in that shot. He starts laughing because he thinks it's it's pretty funny that uh, Winston Wolf liked the coffee. <laughs> I do get sad when Jules and Vincent walk out of the diner at the end of the movie because to your point earlier, you know that shortly after that, Vincent's going to get killed. And the, and the, yeah. and the timeline of the movie, you know, the movie itself ends very positively and triumphantly because they, they got the suitcase, right? But in... The, the universe of the film shortly after that Vincent gets killed. And it's- well, let, let's, let's talk about the chronology for a second, yeah. because I, I was thrown by something after the dozens of times I've seen this film. Um, when I just last watched it over the weekend and prep for this, how, how many days do you think that the film transpires over? I would argue three or something like that. Is it, is it been confirmed or, I mean, I don't, I don't know. The I, I've seen, I've seen a bunch. A lot of people think it's just 24 hours. It's literally one morning to the next morning. Um, and the fight and everything happens that night between the two and the date with Vincent and Mia happens that same night. And after, you know, they do the cleanup on Marvin and they're in the, you know, UC Santa Cruz yeah. shirt and they get hosed down that, that he goes to Eric Stoltz's house, gets the heroin, goes to pick up Mia. But I, I noticed that Mia was at, after Butch, uh, I was just about to say match in his yeah. Mia's in there with, with Vincent, because Jules has already been retired by now, like yeah. when you're just following the order of the film. And she says, I never thanked you for dinner. And I was like, so did they go to the date and was the fight with Butch and Floyd the same night? Or was it like the next night? I don't know. I don't know what the actual answer is. I've seen a couple things on this. And I think that nobody's really been able to nail it, but curious if you had any take. I know exactly what scene you're talking about because they're, they're questioning Butch's manager and they're, in, and they're in the training room and she's yeah. standing there and she's like, I never thanked you for dinner. I took that remark as like a couple of days later. That was just me as a viewer. That's sort of how I interpreted that. Like, oh, by the way, it's good, nice to see you again. I forgot to thank right. you for dinner, but I never thought that was like all within a 24 a hour window. I mean, yeah, I thought it was. And I, I think Mia cleaned up way too well for having right? just had like near death experience with a heroin, you know, with, with snorting heroin and adrenaline pen. But anyway, I want him hiding in a bowl of rice in Indochina. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's so many inappropriate lines. I, I, we can't say him here. No, we'll get canceled. We'll, we can say fuck, but we'll get canceled. Otherwise, I want to talk about the music. because I know this is a big thing for you. But um, yeah, as we established earlier, the pulp soundtrack was a huge thing in 94. I remember going to Halloween parties that October. Everybody was listening to the Pulp soundtrack because it also had some of the quotes from the movie. Reservoir Dogs' soundtrack did that as well. I think Pulp did it probably a little bit better. But you told me that you own the vinyl. I do. I've got it right here. You're, you're, <laughs> awesome. Look at you that. Can just, you can vouch for I'm holding it up. Um, I we, we bought a, a, a record player during the pandemic, and this was the first uh, album that I bought, the first vinyl that I bought. And it's, it's, a, it's a remastered mix. It's printed on this like yellow, like fancy stuff that they do now. But um, I absolutely love this. And I, it's probably the fourth or fifth time that I've bought it uh, on some format, whether CD or cassette or whatever it was that I bought back in the 90s. Um, I just I love it. And I think that, you know, the music director on this, the supervisor is Karen Rockman. She also did Reservoir Dogs. I don't actually don't know if you and Lance talked about this, but she got the job on Reservoir Dogs because she was able to get stuck in the middle with you for the $10,000 budget. I that heard the about film that. Yeah, had, that's all they had. For sure. Pretty incredible. And he fired his existing, you know, the, the music supervisor that he had on Dogs and hired her. And then she did this and a bunch of other things, you know, for him down the road. I think she also did Clueless. But I think with like no budget, she just found all of these obscure, you know, sounds from, you know, different genres and put them all together and made it just work really, really well. And I love it, especially because 
soundtracks typically are like to make money off the soundtrack, you put the hits and the big artists on there. Sure. And I also have just for reference, cause we were talking about it. I have the Forrest Gump soundtrack on vinyl, which was a huge, huge album it was a double album. Yep. This is a massive hit. And if you go through and you look at the songs on this, you've got like Simon and Garfunkel with Mrs. Robinson. You've got Jefferson airplane. We've got like blowing in the wind. You've got, you know, Harry Nilsson with Everybody's Talking or Joy to the World from Three Dog Night. You have very recognizable songs that make this just a really, really big hit just out of the gate as soon as the film comes out. And you don't have that on this, but this equally is, you know, played and celebrated and puts together this just super eclectic mix of, you know, songs that I, I, I think are unexpected and just fit the story and the characters and the dialogue just so, so well. I mean, given Tarantino's encyclopedia knowledge of film, and I, I, I just read his book, Cinema Speculation, this past year, which I was going to talk about at the end of this. But, you know, you really get a better handle on his influences if you read this book, as it really looks at late 60s, early mid 70s films um, that he was a huge fan of. He, you know, going back to the soundtrack, part of me wonders, like, how many of those choices that are in this film are Tarantino decisions versus, you know, Karen's decisions, right? As as the music supervisor, it's probably a collaborative thing and based on what they could also get rights to. But like every every track in that film, every track in every Tarantino film sort of feels intentional and purposeful and not by accident. Totally. I mean, like when I went through the, the Mia Wallace date scene, if, as you know, in, in eloquently, as I was trying to kind of describe that, I think those three songs, those three love songs at different, you know, stages of relationship, I think are very purposeful with what's going on in the film and, the, and, and what he's showing visually. You just feel like the two are so, so connected. Yep. And in Forrest Gump, just as a reference point, you know, because it's sitting next to me, you've got this, this period film that goes over many, many decades. And the music is really just there to help you understand what decade you're in at the time, but it doesn't really serve any other purpose than that. No. And I think that the the soundtrack is as much a character, you know, and part of the story as the characters themselves in Pulp Fiction. I never thought one day that I'd be like singing Flowers on the Wall by the Statler Brothers when I was driving to work, <laughs> like I did in 1995 when I was listening to the soundtrack over and over again. Like these are just like, but again, like he could have chosen any song and that's what he chose. And that's what we as, as the viewer get to sing right when we buy the soundtrack but it, that the power of that of, of choosing i mean i watched once upon a time in hollywood quite a bit during covid because stars was playing it literally like just nonstop. and mm. again I, I know that movie is more recent and everybody probably doesn't have as much appreciation for that film like they do with pulp fiction but the music i mean you've probably heard the soundtrack to that but that 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 album is phenomenal I mean, there are some incredible songs that he chooses. And again, Paul Revere and the Raiders, we're not talking about like major names necessarily, but they totally. all, these songs are purposeful and they just drive the story in ways that a lot of films, I mean, needle drops today are a dime a dozen, right? They're in, I feel like every streaming show I watch or anything I watch on, on TV, there's always like a song that they get the rights to, but it just doesn't work as hard as it does back back then. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, he's got like all these this the surf rider kind of things on here and Miserloo is the kind of the kind of the theme overall. Jungle Boogie Cool and the Gang was so good. And there's references to Cool and the Gang that Jules makes and I, I just think, um, you know, I've listened to this thing backwards and forwards a million times and it just never gets old. And it's something you just don't find anywhere else. And I think that's also part of what I love so much about the soundtrack is just like what it helped me also just discover. Like Forrest Gump is just a collection of, 
you know, really great hits over the decades, but like I discovered and learned something with the pulp soundtrack and also Reservoir Dogs, I think equally, you know. Yeah, when you're watching a, a movie like Django Unchained and which came, comes along, you know, a decade later and, you know, there's that scene when they show um, Jamie Foxx and, and Christoph Waltz and they're riding their horses and they're playing Jim Croce's I Got a Name. And, and it's yeah. like, it's it's a beautiful moment in this film that is is a hard movie to watch. And, and you see this and it's like beautiful and it's a great song and a memorable song and, to, to make that decision and that part of that film for just a few seconds is just, that's, that's the work of a, of a really talented filmmaker. You just don't see it. it I just love it. And I'm so grateful that he's done the work that he's done because again, it's just about that discovery and appreciation for the, the story and the character development that he does. And then the, you know, the use of music in the kill bill films. I mean, I mean, the, the kill bill volume one, the, the needle drops in that film are, are pretty masterful. And I didn't love the kill bill movies as much as I think you guys did. I just, um, for me, it was just a whole different thing. And, it didn't, um, I don't know, it, did, it, it didn't satisfy what I think Dogs and even Inglorious Bastards and, and Pulp Fiction did, which I think are his top three, in my opinion. But when you're sitting there watching uh, Mia Wallace talk about her failed pilot, which was Fox Force 5, do you see that play out in Kill Bill? Do you make the connection? I mean, basically, the storyline of Kill Bill with, with her as the bride and these other characters, there is, I mean, I'm fairly certain that he was paying homage to Fox Force 5 and that's what Kill Bill became. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, the Tarantino-verse is all interconnected. I think, isn't isn't Mr. Blonde related to Vincent Vega? Aren't they cousins? Vic Vega and Vincent Vega, right? Yep. Goes back to Zorro, apparently, who's Don Diego Vega, was was Zorro's real name. Are you serious? I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, Don Diego de la Vega is Zorro's, the character Zorro, which started as pulp fiction and started as like pulp, you know, storytelling and, 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 uh, whatever, uh, comic strips, um, was, uh, was his name. And I think Zorro is in, Zorro is one of the characters actually at Jack Rabbit Slim's. He's one of the, one of the waiters. They show Zorro in there. I don't yeah, think I've ever picked up on that yeah. one. That's so interesting. Yeah. I felt like I've, mm-hmm. I've picked up on most of them, but I didn't see that one. I have to go back and, and watch that again. Um, speaking of Vic Vega, Ma- Michael Madsen, who played Mr. Mr. Blonde, in Reservoir Dogs, he originally was supposed to play Vincent Vega. Uh, he was doing rehearsals for Wyatt Earp, and they wouldn't let him out of the rehearsal, so he couldn't be a part of Pulp Fiction. But I wonder how Michael Madsen feels that he didn't get to play <laughs> Vincent Vega. Doesn't that suck? There's all these people that missed out on Pulp Fiction. Right? <laughs> Jason, let me ask you, as we wrap up, are there any weak spots in Pulp Fiction? Oh, you know, I really I really struggle with this one. I don't think so. I think that um, a couple of things I would have liked to have seen happen that I wouldn't call weak spots, like I, I did have some issues with the, with the order and the chronology, but we talked about that. Um, I would love to have seen what, how Mia Wallace reacted to Vincent Vega's death. And I would have loved to see that story develop a little more because I do, I do think there was some chemistry there that wouldn't have ended with Vincent getting thrown out of a four story window, the way that it happened with Tony Rocky Har. Um, I would have liked to seen that a little bit. Um, I think I, I, I didn't, I, I wanted to ask you what you thought about, Tarantino's uh, portrayal of Jimmy as an actor. Um, I, I get a little annoyed by the whole Bonnie situation scene. I think like, are we really going like DEFCON one because the the guy's wife is going to come home and why does Jules is, why is he so referential to, to Jimmy and what's their relationship um, that, you know, the Bonnie situation could get so explosive. I mean, it's funny and dark and you can just imagine this guy's wife going ballistic, but like, was it strong enough as a, as a plot line? I don't know. You know. I wonder what Jimmy actually does for a living. Like, what what is what is Jimmy's deal? Is he like does he have like one foot in in the criminal underworld and he's d- does something else on the side? Like, he's got his you know best linen that he got as a wedding gift from his aunt and uncle. 
Um, he's married to this, you know, nurse at the, at, like he's, it's a totally separate life. So you're, I, I wonder what that connection was. And I don't think Tarantino was like the best actor. So I don't know, man, that's really it. Like other, other than that, this is still one of my top five films as we've talked about and, you know, just pretty epic on every level. What about you? Any weak spots on your end? Any flaws? There's a couple of things. One is I don't love Fabian. I don't love the performance. Maybe it's the performance is okay. And I just don't love the character. Um, I don't think she's got great rapport with Bruce Willis, but again, these are, this is me just like answering the question. She's annoying. There's no question. She's annoying. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for at least giving me that. It kind of holds the movie back a little bit. Well, this gets into my next point though. So this is what it is. I think the first story, as we talked about earlier, when, when Vince and Mia go out on their date, right? That Jack rabbit slims, that whole sequence, that whole story is like firing on all cylinders, right? That they're just throwing, throwing fastballs the entire time. I think the second story and the third story just sort of like don't they don't like play at that same level hmm. as as maybe this, the first story. And I think even by the third story and you're already nodding like you're, you're disagreeing. The third story feels a little bit rushed, like the movie is sort of trying to get to the, the close at the diner again. Yeah, look, I mean, remember, everything happened before breakfast on both days here, too. Right. So we are we are rushing. We don't want to get into lunch, do we? Um, <laughs> I think the story with Butch in particular and the relationship with Ving Rhames, with Marcellus Wallace, it the, the relationship between those two is just so incredible. And what they go through and then how it you know, resolves itself in the end with Butch in the, in the gun shop and rescuing Marcellus Wallace. I just, I just think that that, that takes over for me. Like they have every hall pass they need on anything that might've felt rushed or how fucking (laughs) annoying Fabian is because could you imagine having her as your girlfriend? I mean, the blueberry pancakes after everything that he went through, like give, Oh my God, like you just want to kill her. (laughs) But I think that's also part of it. I think she was supposed to be annoying. I I think you're right that it's flawed, but I think it was also meant to be that way. Part of the charm of that sequence is like when he goes to pick her up in the, in the chopper and he's, he's actually like very upset with her first. He's like, we got to fucking go, let's go. And then she's coming down and she's asking all these questions, but then he pivots and then he puts on his boyfriend hat again, starts to talk to her at her level because he knows he's not going to get her anywhere until he does that. I thought they were all great stories. And I think, you know, I, I do agree with you that Fabian's a little bit flawed. You know, I mentioned the relationship between, uh, I would have loved to have seen Mia's reaction to the Vince thing. Other than that, man, like, you know, the Jimmy thing we talked about. Other than that, it's it's perfect for me. I'm not going to start shooting holes in this movie because that's just a waste of time. This movie is phenomenal, and I and I thoroughly enjoyed watching it on the rewatch uh, to get prepared for this. And um, and again, I, I think when I talked to Newhouser during Reservoir Dogs, I may have dinged this movie a little bit on cinematography. I thought there were a couple of a couple of moments in this movie where I didn't think they were beautifully shot or maybe beautifully lit. And I would say that probably applies towards the last story when they're at Jimmy's house. I feel like the colors are kind of drab. And and listen, maybe that's the look that he was going for. Because I think compared to, you know, the way the movie looks and feels during the Jack Rabbit Slim sequence, it's like night and day. Yeah. But maybe that's part of it. They're in the suburbs and they're in Toluca Lake and maybe that's what he was going for. But there weren't there weren't any there weren't any amazing camera angles. I don't think this was a film that should be propped up for cinematography. I think it's all about character and dialogue and story. Um, I, I agree that it's probably a B on cinematography, but for me it's an A plus on everything else. Jason, it's reported that Tarantino is is busy prepping his last movie, The Movie Critic, which from what I've read is about a film critic who works for a a porn mag. 
Um, but he said that this is his last feature film. Do you believe him? I, I don't. I think he's got another uh, few chapters left, more stories to tell. He might be the Tom Brady of filmmaking and just say he's retiring and then come back in a year or two with something else, maybe three years, whatever it is. It could be 10 years. Um, he's coming back. I don't think this is his last thing. Is this this is his 10th film, if I'm not mistaken? I think so. Yeah. Um, and it's a, and he said that he's on the record saying this is his last feature film. We'll see. That doesn't mean that he can't start doing something for a streamer, right? Sure. And he makes a six-part whatever, or if he wants to make Bounty Law, which I would throw my money over right away if he, if he does that. I would love to watch a, a Bounty Law streaming series. <laughs> I'm not sure if anybody's going to pay for that, but certainly uh, I would watch it. But I don't think he's done either. I'm not sure if he's if he's going to be done with theatrical, I don't think he even knows, to be honest. I think he, I think that's how he might feel now, but when you're an auteur and you are, you know, the, a filmmaker at the genius level that he's at, I, I don't think he even can predict what's going to happen next. Is there anybody else right now working as a filmmaker that is in the conversation of Tarantino? Like, is he the last of his kind right now? Man, you're stumping me on this and on the spot. I cannot think of anybody that I would even put in his category. I really can't. I can't either. There's nobody that really excites me the way that he has over the last, you know, 30 years or whatever it's been. I, I, I don't think there's anybody in his league. The movies I've seen, like I'm sort of thinking out loud, like, are there any other filmmakers working today that are, you know, young and up and coming that have the same sort of longevity that will leave their mark that he has. I mean, you can't say PTA because he's of the same generation as Tarantino. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, and I would say the same thing for Fincher, right? Totally. I mean, anybody that I would put in Tarantino's league like him or even, you know, I'd argue the Coen brothers to some degree. I mean, it's different genres and different kind of approach to filmmaking, but they're all of the same generation, really. So I, I don't think there's anybody new. Maybe we'll be... Uh, I hope we're surprised in our lifetimes and I, I would cheer on anybody else that even comes close to what Tarantino has accomplished or the way he's made me feel about film. Um, but I don't see anybody on his heels right now. Last thing I want to say about Pulp Fiction, Jason, I don't think I ever told you this, but my uh, my very first bootleg VHS, <laughs> which I ever bought in my life, and I may have mentioned this in the Dogs episode, was Pulp Fiction. I was working in D.C. It was on the corner of 13th and K., this is pre-DVD. This is 1994. I mean, honestly, this is like maybe a month after the movie came out in theaters. So th it was still playing in theaters. And I'm walking down the sidewalk with my buddy at lunch, and I see this guy. He's got a bunch of VHSs. You could tell that like the, the artwork was printed off of a home printer. It looked blurry, and it said, there it is, Pulp Fiction. And I'm like, you have Pulp Fiction on videotape? He's like, yes. And I'm like, how much is that? He's like, it's $5. And I grabbed my wallet, and I just threw the $5 over right away. And I don't, I'm not a believer in... Uh, you know, piracy, I'm not a fan of supporting that, but I'm also 23 and I probably had already seen Pulp twice at the theater at this point. I'm like, I can have this at home. That's amazing. Jason, it was the worst quality you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Why would you do that to Pulp Fiction of all things? Of all films to watch on bootleg, that is not the one with some guy sitting in the back of the movie theater. Wasn't there a Seinfeld episode with Kramer? He was in there filming and then, J and then Jerry took over, right? And Jerry did it better. <laughs> Jason, what are we doing next? I'm First, I I'm assuming that you enjoy this experience. This was amazing. This was the most fun I've had all year. I mean, I'm telling you, and it probably will be the most fun. I Ask me again in December. We're going to get the most listens, Dennis. I'm very competitive. I want to get the most listens. We're going to promote the shit out of this all over social. Everybody in media is going to be listening to it. I think this one's going to do well. I don't disagree with you. But what are we going to do next? Can we top? I mean, how do you top Pulp Fiction? There needs to be a movie that's like on your list that's like, Maybe not in the same genre, but it needs to be of that level of significance. What movie are we talking? So, I mean, th these are films of great significance to me in my life, which is all I can really, you know, bank on here. But I, I have to say Airplane. Airplane is one of my all-time favorite films. Totally different wow. genre. But that movie, every time it's on, I seek it out. I'll watch it whenever. It's the mo one of the most quotable films. 
And my dear departed father and I used to love this film so much. We would quote it all the time, like from the time I was probably 13, 14 years old and growing up. So it has, it's a very special film for me. And I think one of the most hysterical, you know, not funny, funny movies ever made. But that is significant. That is a a significant comedy from the early 80s that sort of set set another path for the slapstick comedies that sort of hadn't existed prior to Airplane, right? They were making fun of those movies from the 70s, the airport, 77s, and all that sort of stuff. I never told you, I interviewed Jerry Zucker in college (laughs) when I was writing for the Diamondback, and he had this really bad comedy, and I want to say it was called Brain Donors. And maybe John Turturro was in it, and he was the director of it, and he was on the campus. He was making the rounds through D.C., and I got to interview one of the uh, one of the three directors of, of Airplane. I love that. That's amazing. I got two more real quick. I got two more. Yeah, let's hear it. Spinal Tap, incredible film. Has anybody called Spinal Tap yet? I want dibs on Spinal Tap. No one has called Spinal Anything Tap. Christopher Guest, highly quotable, another great, you know, great actors, great storytelling. Love love all the, the ensemble cast in his films. And then okay. the last one is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I guarantee you nobody will pick that one. But that is no where the soundtrack, because we're talking about soundtracks. That's a film where the soundtrack actually grossed more than the film did and went on to be a massive, massive hit. T-Bone Burnett did that soundtrack, right? That's right. That That's absolutely right. Yeah. I own that soundtrack. That soundtrack's phenomenal. It's a great one. It was up for an Oscar, wasn't it? It did, and it won a CMT. It won a CMT award, that song. Is the soundtrack better than the movie? I don't think so. I think they're both great, and, and it's, a, it's a case where they both play really, really well together, just like we talked about with Pulp Fiction. You know, like the, the soundtrack and the film are just perfect perfect compliments of one another. We have not covered a Coen Brothers film on this pod yet, and that is going to change this year for sure. For sure. I wasn't thinking that film. I was thinking um, No Country for Old Men, which is damn near perfect, as I've said previously, for me. Airplane has my attention. I'm just going to say that. I I would love to talk about Airplane. Um, We had a choice of steak or fish. That's right. (laughs) I had lasagna. Surely you can't be serious. Uh, Jason, thanks for being on the show. This was a blast. Um, so great to see you again. I wish you lots of success in, in the new job, and I'm sure you'll be calling me about that soon enough. But everybody, we're going to be back in a few weeks. We are doing Doug Lehman's Swingers from 1996. And dare I say, are there any other movies that were more quotable from the 90s besides Pulp Fiction and Swingers? 100%. You're right. I quoted both of those left and right for that stretch between uh, 94 and I think Swingers came out in 96. So those couple of years, man, that's what everybody was talking about. Um, can't wait to talk about that with my buddy Jason Zolan. One last uh, plug for uh, East End Cowboy. Tell everybody where they could find it. Oh, wow. Awesome. East End Cowboy. Follow me on Instagram, east.end.cowboy. That's our handle. And Dennis, I'm going to do something I don't know if you've ever done in 33 ep- episodes. I've got a listener giveaway. The first 10 people that DM me on Instagram and tell them, tell me that they listen to the show. I'm sending them a free uh, barbecue sauce uh, box and an East End Cowboy hat. Get on it, people. East.end.cowboy. Follow along. This is why you're Jason Wagenheim. This is why you're the man. You just you just worked that into this episode. There you go. I've had the sauce. Uh, you will not be disappointed. You should do it. You should always listen to the show, but listen to it now because you want to get the, uh, the, the, the barbecue sauce. So that's fantastic. The giveaway is on. It's great to see you, and uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Thanks, Dennis. Great time. Like the well for well and the babies cry.